Welcome to the Journeys of Scientists podcast. This is a podcast put out by WAMPS, which stands for Women and Minorities in the Physical Sciences. We are a graduate student organization at Michigan State University. I am Brian Stanley. I am a graduate student in the physics department at MSU. The purpose of this podcast is to talk with other graduate students at MSU and other universities to get a sense of the type of research they do, but also learn about life as a graduate student, both within and outside the classroom or research lab. If you or someone else you know are interested in participating in the Journeys of Scientists podcast, you can email me at the email below in the show notes, or you can visit the WAMPS website, which is www.wamps.org, and you can send us a message there. On this episode, we are joined by Eric Ameskida. He is a PhD candidate in the Computational Mathematics Science and Engineering program at MSU. His research focuses on bridging mathematics, x-rays, and plant biology. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Eric. Could you briefly introduce yourself? What is the department that you're, that you're in? What, do you, what is the type of work that you do? Uh, my department is a kind of funny department. It started back in 2016. It's known as CMSC. It stands for Computational Mathematics Science and Engineering, <laughs> and it's a boatload of words, and it's a department that tries to be every single STEM department at once. Uh, that being said, my research is kind of goes is all over the place because it draws from math, from machine learning, from image processing, and a lot of that is applied to plant biology. Okay. In my lab, we look at the shape of plants. Oh, very interesting. So like CMC, like I had never heard of that before I came to MSU. Is that like just a relative like MSU sort of department or is this like kind of a growing area that other places are having? Uh, it's it's a growing area. So again, CMSC as a department, it was founded just in 2015 uh, and the first students came in 2016. I came here to MSU in 2018. So I'm the third cohort ever to be in CMSE, and I still feel like, well, all my cohort and the people before uh, before me, all of us feel like guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, th- this is an effort that has been picking up in several institutions. Uh, from the top of my head, I know of Duke and Georgia Tech that have started similar departments that, uh, because nowadays, uh, with the explosion of computation power and data science and big data and data mining, uh, there's a lot of interest in being able to bridge uh, precisely this, comp- to harness this computational power and know exactly how to apply it to different areas. And not just within math or within, or within computer science, but apply it to biology, to chemistry, to social sciences uh, and whatnot. <laughs> Okay. And then you mentioned that like the stuff that you do deals a little bit with plant biology. So what is kind of the work that you do specifically? So, so the, the tagline is we look at shape of plants, plant morphology, 
in practice, what that means is that in the plant biology building at MSU in the basement, there is a five-ton lead box um, that is an X-ray CT scanner. Um, so in um, just like the ones that you find in a hospital, but instead of taking X-rays of of, of people, of <laughs> bones and uh, um, people, we take scans of plants. So inside that machine, you can throw in shoots, roots, fruits, flowers, leaves, whatever happens to land, to land on my advisor hands, it just gets scanned. Um, and once we have these 3D beautiful reconstructions of, of plants, uh, of leaves, of fruits, then we do a bit of, you can say that we do magic with both image processing and mathematics to extract some shape information. So the, the shape of the leaf or the shape of the orange or the shape of an apple doesn't depend on how you look at the orange or how I look at the apple, but the math within the apple that tells me about its shape. Oh, okay. That's re- oh, that's really interesting. So, um, how did you get into? Are you so? Do you consider yourself more of a plant biologist who does a lot of computational stuff, or do you do you consider yourself more of like a computational person who happens to do this research? Stuff? on plants uh, i started as the latter now i'm more of the former so i'm, I'm a mathematician by training uh, so back in college in in universidad de guanajuato in mexico i did five years of math um and most of and essentially all my courses were either math or computer science and yeah so so when when i came here to to MSU, I thought, oh, well, I, I would be, I want to keep doing applied math. Uh, it's, it's something that I had started back in college. Uh, back in college, I, I I did a similar project of what I'm doing now, except that instead of looking at the shape of plants, I was looking at the shape of archaeological artifacts. Uh, and I thought, oh, well, I, I will just keep doing math. And plant biology is just an excuse to, to get paid as a mathematician. Uh, nowadays, uh, I got into plants a lot. Uh, I even took courses in plant bi- in, with a PhD in plant biology, and I just fell in love with them. Uh, and now most of my research is plant-driven. And uh, in, the fu- in the future, I plan to, to, to stay that way. Oh, okay. That's, that's really interesting. So, like, how big is... The, the group that you work with, is it primarily just like you and your advisor? Is there a larger group? Uh, it, it's a very small group. Uh, so right now it's just my two advisors. Uh, one of them, Liz Munch, she's a mathematician, and Dan Sheetwood, he's a plant biologist. So I get the I, I get assessment from both worlds. Uh, then there are two postdocs and me. And that's essentially it. <laughs> it's uh, the, this whole idea of mixing x-ray CT scans, mathematics, and plant biology is extremely novel. And as far as I know, there are only three groups, at least here in the U.S., that, that are trying to pursue uh, similar research. Okay. That's, that's really exciting. Um, okay. So you said... It's, that- it's also nerve-wracking, uh, knowing that I'm in the frontier of something, and mm-hmm. if that's something is doesn't yield results well if it yields results i will be like a pioneer if it doesn't yield results i don't know what i'm going to do (laughs) um so where did you say you did your your undergrad 
uh, I did it in Universidad de Guanajuato, in Guanajuato, uh, which is a, a state in the center of, in central Mexico, uh, about a five-hour drive north from Mexico City, the capital. Okay, okay. But you grew up in, in Guatemala, is that right? Yeah, I, I grew up in Guatemala, so I've been I've been traveling since since I'm se- since uh, I'm seventeen. So when I so I grew up in Guatemala, I, uh, all my family is there, uh, and currently all my family still lives there. Uh, and then when I was seventeen, I, I had this opportunity to to do my high school abroad uh, with a mm-hmm. scholarship. I was sent to a, you can call a social experiment <laughs> all the way to India. I came back to Guatemala. Uh, I, I took a gap year, tried to figure out my life, uh, decided that I, want, I really wanted to do math, but I didn't want to go to the U.S. at that time. So Mexico was the, the best option. And that was the best decision I have ever taken. I loved college there. And yeah, and now I'm here. Yeah. What <laughs> What did you love about it? Uh, of Of Guanajuato, well, you you need to look pictures for it. Uh, but it's it, it's a very beautiful colonial town. It it, it is as opposite of East Lansing as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very dense. It's very colorful. It's full of cultural activities. Uh, Nightlife, daylife is amazing with full of theater, independent movies, orchestra. Night is also amazing, a very vibrant nightlife. Uh, and on top of that, there is probably the biggest math research center in all the country and one of the biggest math research centers in all Latin America, which gives you a, uh, a very strong foundation in mathematics. And, and one thing I loved about my college is that Uh, the reason why I went to Guanajuato is because of this math research center. And perhaps the most valuable thing I drew out of it was the, is the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. So it, it's something that I have, I have never seen in other institutions, Michigan State included. So, so at that center, there was a cafeteria, heavily subsidized. So it provided very tasty meals at a extremely affordable prices uh, for students. And the The idea was to provide a common space where both faculty and students could go and have some lunch. Mm. Uh, so, so when I was, I was perhaps just in my sophomore year, and I could just go to the cafeteria, grab a tray, uh, grab some plates, and um, and just sit with some random faculty and start chatting with them. And that that was, and everybody was open to do that. Uh, so since my sophomore year, I was. I was actually having meaningful conversations with faculty who are in the frontier of their research, at the forefront of the research. And uh, since that moment, it, it grew in me the idea, oh, okay, so, so that's how a true mathematician looks like. That's how research looks like. That's how PhD actually looks like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds really great. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I wish that there was like yeah, more, more of that around here as, as well. Yeah, here it feels that students, especially undergrads and faculty, live in completely two different mm-hmm. worlds, uh, and you only meet them in classes. And if you are lucky, in an REU, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was like how my experience was. Like, it was uh, I only ever hung out with with other undergrads, 
when I did an RU, okay, I was able to meet like one or two faculty somewhere else, but that was <laughs> that was about it. I never interacted with with faculty all that much. You said you did research too while you were in undergrad. Yep. Uh, so so when I was in my undergrad, um, in my when I was in my third year, um, suffice to say that in in Mexico a math major is is five years long. Uh, they expect you to do research actually four years of courses plus one year of research at the end. Uh, so in my third, by the end of my third year, so I was in the middle, um, I got this opportunity to be part of a project that mixes, that mixed math with archaeology. How do you mix math with archaeology? Okay, so, so the, the, that- the long... So the the, lo- the long story is that it start it all started with a very very poorly written email. I cannot stress how poor written it was. <laughs> the email the email was sent only to undergrad students at that time, and it said, "We are looking for people interested in a research project that mixes math and archaeology. The project might need some tools from topology, from analysis." from probability, from statistics, from Riemannian geometry, from machine learning, from image processing. So basically we so, need somebody, we need an undergrad who knows as much as a PhD does. Yeah, you, you need to know all the math. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that's what I mean by very poorly written. And by the end of the day, it was like, eh, I, I don't lose anything. I'll, I'll just say that I'm interested. Uh, one week later, I, I, I get a response back saying, oh, uh, we are interested in you. Uh, just meet us uh, in this office this day and time for an interview. Okay, so I go to the office. I was expecting to be grilled on why why somebody with why a student with only two three years of experience would have any grasp in any any of the requirements in the email. Turns out that the interview was started with. Congrats, you were the only one who who, who replied to, to our call. Uh, so you get you get to do research. Uh, and and the, the, the research was about Aztec Aztec pre-Columbian masks. So it, it, it's a very it, it it's a pro, it's a problem that grew very close to me. I, I really like to talk about it. So Back in nine, back in nineteen eighties, uh, to be more specific, between nineteen seventy eight and nineteen eighty two, in Mexico City, in in Templo Mayor, which was the main temple of the Aztec Empire in Mexico, there was a series of excavations. Uh, in those excavations, they they found several chambers, and those chambers were filled with masks. Uh, stone masks, uh, probably for cere- for ceremonies and rituals. And the the interesting thing is that archaeologists know for a fact that Aztecs never made such kind of masks, and so, and somehow they were they were in an Aztec temple. So the the possible the most plausible explanation is that these masks were either traded or tributed by other civilizations surrounding the Aztecs. So now the, the question that archaeologists want to answer is, okay, who tributed to them, who traded these masks? And therefore, we can uh, uh, we can construct a timeline on how civilizations interacted with the Aztecs at that time. The problem is that there is no log. There, there, is, no, there is no record of, oh, this, this mask came from this 
from this civilization and these other masks came from this other place. There are only masks and that's about it. So what happens in practice is that uh, an archaeologist takes one, one of these masks, again, uh, it's a stone mask, and says, oh, well, this, this stone is carved in a, it, it, it has like a square shape, and it has a very long nose, and it has very round ears. And we have seen those same patterns in the Gulf Coast. Therefore, this mask should have come from the Gulf Coast. And, this other, and then they take another mask and they say, oh, well, this, this mask is very oblong, and it's very thick, and it has a very flat nose. And we have seen these exact same patterns in the Pacific Coast. Therefore, this mask must come from a civilization in the Pacific Coast, and that's the end of the story. Now, that, that's very subjective, as you might imagine, and it's not common to have two archaeologists who are the same expert, who are experts in the same area, you give them the same mask and they will tell you different answers. Mm. So what my research tried to do was uh, to take a scan. Uh, we were provided with 3D scans of the, all these masks and tried to again, do some magic with math and image processing to, uh, to say something more meaningful about the shape, about the morphology of these masks and classify them, classify them based on this meaningful mathematical information. That is that is so cool. I that is I I I love that. That is like that's that's really cool. And so since I love it when like two seemingly unrelated fields like come together and, and do something like this. So since you were the the only student that you know, you know applied for this and were you like the only math like person there and if so like how how intimidating is that in a sense if you're like the expert the math expert you know as just a second or third year student well that the research project uh, didn't end up as as you might imagine <laughs> um i i actually through through the through the several blunders I made in the social sense, I now I, I feel I am much more careful with, with my plant biology research. Uh, what happened is that so my advisor my advisor got a copy of this data uh, of these 3D scans of masks, um, and then my advisors gave me the data with an, uh, along with another PhD student, and the three of us were mathematicians by training, and the three of us. Uh, finally got some interesting results. We get in touch with the archaeologist, with the, with the main archaeologist who handed us the data in the first place, and he refused to publish it. Ooh. Yeah. Um, essentially, he argued that when he handed us the data, he, he, he thought that it would be just a small class project, a small REU that wouldn't last more than six weeks. Mm. He didn't expect he didn't expect a group to work with it for two years. There, there was never that agreement before agreement beforehand, and he wasn't willing to collaborate. Oh, oh, that's that's a bummer. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I, I was I was very upset for for several months. So. However, the the lesson I drew is yeah, precisely when when you are the. When you are the mathematician in the room or the scientist in the room in general, uh, make sure that everybody is on the same page. Not, mm -hmm. in, not in the sense that everybody understands the same concept, but that everybody is interested in answering the same 
the same question and everybody is willing to share all data and share all expertise as possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Back, back then, my, my feeling was, was of, oh, I'm the mathematician. I, I am the one who knows everything. And archaeologists, uh, archaeologists they, they only dig rocks. They, they know nothing about how to do these things. So I am actually helpful. I am actually being helpful. And I actually, not just helpful, I am shining a light and they will surely follow my lead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was really high, very high on my horse. Uh, and then, and then I, I realized that no, archaeologists actually they have control over the data. They have full rights to if they want to publish it or not. And the the fact that I'm a mathematician doesn't make me any special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think so that's it was, like... a, it was a very humbling experience. Yeah, yeah. I think that's like really important for you know anything but especially in like stem i feel like stem there's a lot of like ego of we we are we are the top dogs and we know everything and whatever um but everyone's kind of like experts in their own in their own area or expertise and all that and so yeah i agree it's like really important to make sure like everyone's on the same page we all have the same goals in mind that those are like relatively like stated going like early on to make sure that there isn't conflict um and so um never mind i it's poorly I, I didn't have a well thought out question after that um okay great so then when you were in undergrad were you involved in like any extracurriculars or clubs or things outside of research and, and classes uh yes so so like, like I mentioned, of Guanajuato, is it has a very active cultural scene. Uh, actually, it's pro. You can say that you can argue that it's the cultural hotspot of the whole country. Uh, suffice to say that you must go at least once in your lifetime to a Cervantino, uh, which is usually the whole month of October. Uh, so for three, four weeks in October. Well, who knows? But who knows how it works now with pandemic? Mm-hmm. But before pandemic. Uh, in three, four weeks in October, you would have artists come all over, all over the world, literally from the five continents, and just have theater, cinema, uh, music, orchestra, dance, whatever, nonstop for three weeks. It, it was amazing, and I, and I grew, I, I really grew fond of that, of that cultural scene, to the point that I led the. University, the math department film club for about three years and a half. And my, mm. my goal was to provide a space uh, where people, I mean, first of all, a space where people would do something different than math. Second, provide a space where people would be able to watch movies that are not available on cinemas. So, so my, my rule was, my only rule when, when choosing movies was don't take blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people want to go to see blockbusters, there there's plenty of options already. Uh, I will go for that obscure uh, Czechoslovakian film from the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 so I, I would make like thematic cycles once a month, like four movies that share some theme. Like they are either the main protagonist is a small kid or 
decisions have to be in the split of a second or the the main character has to deal with the death of a loved one and so so the, uh, a range a range obscure movies on kind of i thought profound themes and um, by the end of the day i would also have a small discussion uh, with whoever showed up so so that, that was another that was another venue at least at least for me to get to know more students and more faculty um, yeah that's pretty cool so you're like a, a big film person um are you still like watching like kind of obscure movies when you can not anymore really uh yeah i'm, I'm not uh, actually have it's been years since i watched the movie now uh, now all, all the time that i used to spend watching movies back in guanajuato i spend it uh cycling these days in michigan uh, I realized that for me, a movie wasn't just sitting and watching. For me, there there had there, a third and important component was the setting. And through the five years I was in Guanajuato, I I think I only watched like once or twice a movie on my own on my computer. The rest of the movies I would go to a film club, which was an actual an actual space with very comfortable couches and very dark ambience. Uh, it, it felt it felt right. It felt intimate. Mm-hmm. And I, I really liked the the intimacy and Guanajuato was filled of these sort of intimate places. Mm-hmm. So like the stuff that you've mentioned a lot of like community, like you mentioned the, the cafeteria is a very like communal place. This film club was kind of like a place that you could have like a little bit of community of like, Oh, I can talk about this with, with other people. But then you mentioned cycling. Do you cycle with other people or is you just like cycling for you, you know, out in the world of Michigan? Yeah. I know I'm just cycling uh, solo. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very bad at, uh, getting together with with other people uh I, I guess it's yeah I, I just need to reach out to the right people either either I'm the fastest of the group or I'm the slowest in the group uh, I need to find the right balance uh, I started cycling in the pandemic uh, so so before the pandemic my the uh, okay, so so when I arrived here to East Lansing, my first year was very harsh because I was trying to find a piece of Guanajuato here in Michigan, and I failed miserably. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I decided by, by at the beginning of my second year, 2019, that okay, I will do physical activity. I will exercise uh, just to just to have uh, just to release some steam. Um, I started swimming a lot. Uh, I have a friend who also swims, and she motivated me. Uh, every every week, and she gave me a lot of tips and and whatnot. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So I started getting good at swimming. COVID hits, the pool is closed, uh, and basically the only the only activity I had left was cycling. Uh, naturally, because COVID, uh, everybody wants to be as far away as possible from everybody, especially in March, April, 2020. So. I guess I just started cycling solo, lonely, and that's that's how it remained. Yeah, I've always liked riding my bike. I ride my bike a lot, and especially during the pandemic. You know, okay, I ride three or four times <laughs> a week on on longest rides. Where do you where do you ride your bike? 
Is it just kind of around East Lansing? Do you travel farther? Uh, so, so nowadays my my goal is to do hundreds, at, at least hundred miles a week, mm-hmm. uh, if not more. Um, so my short, quote unquote, short rides uh, are going from my house in East Lansing to either Williamstone or from my house to Lyingsburg. Um, okay. so bo- both of them are like 30 to 35 miles round trip mm-hmm. okay um do you do you ride year round or are you you know just when it's nice and warm out or will you bear the snow or the cold <laughs> i i do i do it year round uh i don't have a car so for mm-hmm. me uh biking is is not just leisure but also my main means of transportation um, so I have two bikes, uh, a commuter and a, and a nice bike that, I, that is the one that I take to Williamstone and Lanesburg. Uh, and yeah, I commute year round. Uh, this past winter was this past winter was my third winter ever here in here in Michigan. And I grew up in Guatemala and then Mexico. So 2018, it was my very first winter, the very first time in life that I see snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this past winter, so the, the first two, I I would say I survived. This mm. third one, I really enjoyed. Um, so I, I got fenders, I got started tires, and I got the right gear. And even though there was no need to commute because everything is online, uh, I would go out for two, three hours just for fun. Okay, very nice, very nice. Yeah, that's that's something that like got to me. I can never quite get to riding the bike in, in the cold. I I don't really like the cold weather. <laughs> there there is a saying. I, I think it's from Sweden, which is there is no bad weather. There's only bad gear. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So how did you end up at MSU? Did you sit? Wait, did you do your gap year in between high school and undergrad, or was that between undergrad and grad school? I did my gap year between high school and undergrad. Okay. So then what, what brought you to, to MSU? And so in my, my final year, um, I got my, my advisor took me to a conference in Knoxville, Tennessee, University of Tennessee. I presented a poster precisely on this research of how to use math to classify pre-Columbian masks. Um, one of the, the, the conf- it was a, a short conference, a three-day conference focused on, di- on data science. Um, one of the um, speakers at that conference was Elizabeth Munch, who is my current advisor. So I presented my poster. She, she was very interested, and she said, oh, in Michigan State, uh, we, are doing, we are trying to do something similar using, using math to classify shape of different things. And I said, oh, nice, because I'm... I'm in my final year, and I, I actually am looking for PhD opportunities. Um, we just clicked. Oh, very nice, very nice. And how is that transition? Well, I guess more in general, like, okay, you grew up in Guatemala, then you did your year in, in India, and then you moved to Mexico, and now you moved to the U.S. Like, how has it been moving to all these, like, very different places, you know, that kind of far away? How have, was like the transitions okay for you? Uh, it has, it has buried. <laughs> yeah, it, it has, it has buried. Uh, so, so when, so when I went from Guatemala to, to India, because I, I was part of a, 
okay, just just to say a bit more about India. It was a you can call it a social experiment. Uh, it's a global movement known as UWC, United World Colleges, and the experiment consists on having at that time there were twelve campuses. Probably nowadays there are more. Uh, twelve campuses spread in twelve different countries. So take a random country, in this case India, put a campus in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and then grab 200 kids between 15 and 19 year olds that in total they represent more than uh, take 200 kids that represent 50 different nationalities uh, put them in the campus shake them well and see what happens <laughs> that, that was my that was my high school so when i went from guatemala to india i knew that i would be part of this shake-up and i was extremely excited i never looked back uh, I was just 16 or 17 years old and yeah my my parents were crying they, they say that uh, i was just smiling from all the way from guatemala to india and i, I had i was walking on clouds for those two years <laughs> then, then i come back to guatemala I, I i rearranged my life i discovered about guanajuato i i actually got the chance to do a uh, to go for a brief conference in guanajuato to to see the city in person, I fell in love and I decided, okay, I want to I want to actually do college in this city. So when I left from Guanajuato to from Guatemala to Guanajuato to Mexico, I already knew what to expect. I already knew that the city was beautiful. And again, I was just walking on clouds for those five years. Uh, but that didn't work when I came here to MSU. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I guess because I I guess because I knew that it would be yeah, it will be PhD and PhD is always hard, regardless of how much you love your department. Mm. PhD life is hard. Um, also, East Lansing as a city is not that exciting. So it, it took me a while. It took me, yeah, I, I guess for me, that was the hardest of moving. My, my previous experience said, okay, you have already moved to two, two different countries in both of them you adapted almost immediately and you moved on with your life. And when I came here to Michigan, it was like, wait a second, this, my, my life skills, it seemed that they, they don't work. It seems that moving to two different countries doesn't prepare, didn't prepare me any, any better uh, for this last change. Uh, my, my first year was hard. And, and after that, I, I kind of finally found my spot here in MSU and, yeah. Now, now I feel happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you're at least like found a little bit. Are you? Have you found like a, a at least a smaller community of the people either in your field or other aspects or organizations that make make the change a little more bearable? Yeah, uh, cycling definitely helped. That that was a true key change. Uh, so if, if there's some silver lining in the pandemic, <laughs> is that I found cycling. Yeah, well, that's that's really great to hear. Or it's really great that you found something. The pandemic part, maybe not. <laughs> that's so great to hear, but um, yeah, very, very nice. Um, so kind of wrapping things up a little bit here, um, I like to ask people, like, do you have any advice or tips of wisdom they would give either undergraduates thinking about going to the uh, going to graduate school, or even like first year grad students on handling that that adjustment to 
to grad school since it is like a lot of work and very stressful for a lot of reasons, as you mentioned. Oh. Yeah. Um, in, my, in my case, I, I would say that what had made uh, a true difference uh, throughout all my stages, and I'm also thinking, thinking, thinking back of, of the previous question of how, how was been moving, to, how has how has my life experience been shaped by moving through different countries? One of the constants uh, throughout my journey is that I've always had a very deep uh, connection with my family, with my parents and my brother. Uh, and, I, and, and I know that regardless of how bad things go uh, in whichever country I happen to be, mm-hmm. uh, I always have them and I can always reach out to reach out to them and and just say, "Hey, uh, I feel like crap. Uh, <laughs> this is not working." And uh, they will just be there, listen to whatever I have to say, take it off my chest, and move on. Uh, so, so being so having that um, confidence with my family that I can share them, I can share with them absolutely everything. It has been very very relieving. Um, Actually, that's the main reason why I did a gap year uh, between high school and college. And I feel really grateful of that gap year. Uh, that in that gap year, I managed to just stay home and get to know my parents much better. Not, not just as, as a kid and a parent, but, but as two actual adults having, com- having a conversation. Yeah, that's, I'm really glad to hear that. I know, you know, when I moved to Michigan, you know, I, you know, I've never been to Michigan before when I came, when I started grad school and I didn't know anyone here. And so even now I still, I call my mom like two or three times a week, you know, just keeping on, on updates and everything. Um, yeah. Call your mom, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Your parents are important. That, That would be my, my advice. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on and doing this. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you.